Hi everyone and welcome to Leukemia Chatters, a podcast about blood cancer from Leukemia Care. For this month's bonus episode, I spoke to Usha Grieve from Compassion and Dying. Usha is their Director of Information and Partnerships. Compassion and Dying aim to get people to open up about their wishes for healthcare so they can plan for the future and give everyone peace of mind should the worst happen. Usha and I chatted about their work and how it could support blood cancer patients and their family. Uh, my name is Usha Grieve and I am the Director of Partnerships and Services within Compassion in Dying. So I look after all of our information products and our information line and um, our community outreach services. Great. And before we go into precisely what that entails, what is Compassion in Dying and what, what's the aims of the organisation exactly? Well, we want everyone at the end of life to get the care and treatment that's right for them, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, this means that decisions are made with people and not for people. Yeah. Um, we help people to understand their treatment options and to know what questions to ask their healthcare professionals to be able to make decisions that reflect their priorities and goals. So essentially, it's for them to be able to make decisions which mean that their treatment and their care helps them. Um, to achieve whatever they want for the for, for the rest of their life. Um, and we support people also to plan for their treatment and care. And this is really important for us um, because we find that when, you know, what matters most to a person is known about and recorded, it makes it easier for their family, um, for their friends and healthcare professionals to follow their wishes. Um, Definitely. It results in treatment and care that's more in line with that person's um values and essentially as well it, it, and I think this is really important it doesn't just result in um, better outcomes for the person in the future it, it gives a enormous sense of peace of mind in the present as well yeah yes yeah. I think that's what I like most about it personally anyway I feel like if everything's sorted now there's less to worry about if exactly. that time comes yeah exactly exactly and and we hear a lot from people that um they might come to us and have this kind of um, sort of vague worry that they can't really articulate and we're able to talk them through what their hopes are and, and what their concerns are and um, through that conversation help them to write a, a care plan, whether that's an advanced decision to refuse treatment or um, set up a lasting care of attorney to appoint somebody else to make a decision. But, um, but whatever the thing that they end up doing, it, it, it can be sort of clinically really helpful as well. Yeah. That sounds great. So where did it, where did the idea for Compassion in Dying as an organisation come from? Was it one person who had experienced this personally or was it more of a collective thing? Well, we were actually set up by Dignity in Dying, who are the campaigning organisation um, trying to legalise assisted dying for mm-hmm. adults with a terminal illness. And they set us up in 2007 because they realised that there was actually a real lack of information for people on their rights to make decisions under the current law. So whether they were where they were working really hard to change the law, they realised actually there's a law that exists at the moment, which was the mental mm-hmm. capacity, which lets people make decisions and take charge of their care. But there isn't really anywhere, or there wasn't then anyway, anywhere for people to go to find out more about that and to understand how to do it. So they set us up with those charitable aims of supporting people to make decisions and plan their care in advance. And um, that's an amazing aim and I'm glad they did um it's definitely helping some of our patients already so lovely to hear why sounds like a strange question but why do we need an organization such as yours like what are what what are the things stopping people talking about 
death, dying, what they want in their life? What what research have you guys done around that area? There are lots of reasons why um, compassion and dying is needed. I mean, you, you've probably seen something that I read all the time in the media and I hear quite often that people saying that death is a taboo and we find that it's it actually isn't and um, there's this reluctance to sort of engage with dying and, and reluctance um, for people to actually have conversations about what they want and what matters to them but mm-hmm. we find that people actually do want to have these conversations and people come to us and they say wow you know they haven't managed to have this conversation with anyone yet there's no one else that I can um, talk to so frankly about um, about what's important to me so I, I think it's really important to challenge that that label yeah. as a degree. Um, and I think within within healthcare professionals, it's often labelled as a difficult conversation. So I see a lot of training um, for doctors in primary care, for example, um, around how to have the difficult conversation. Yeah. I think it's unhelpful to label it as a difficult conversation. I think it should be instead just talked about as an important conversation because I think almost labelling it difficult just creates an additional barrier. Um, and we find that people value... Um, enormously having a space to talk through you know what what matters to them and, and what their priorities are for the time that they have left and how um, their what's important to their quality of life and how once they once they understand that and that, that's clear how that can underpin decisions about their treatment and how it can help them to make decisions about their treatment which make it more makes it more likely that they'll be able to maximize that quality of life that they have. Just going back to something you said a second ago, do you, you said there's sort of a reluctance to begin the conversation. Do you think that some of that stems from the fear of other people's reactions to starting the conversation and then no one's talking to each other because they're all worried about what everyone's going to say? Yes, yes definitely. I think that there's a fear that... that um, it will offend people, um, that it will upset their family members. I mean, you know, we, people tell us that, you know, my, my son doesn't really want to talk about that because he feels like um, if I talk about it, then it will make it happen. But actually, once they do sort of take that leap and have a conversation um, about their end of life wishes, it generally speaking, it's a, a really positive experience. Yeah, and I think you've got a little plug for you here. <laughs> Your blog is great on this subject. I was reading it earlier. It's called Death, Dying and Digital, and it just gives so many examples of people who took that leap and found it wasn't actually that scary once they'd done it, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, great. I'm glad you. I'm glad you read that. <laughs> yeah, really yeah. There's so many examples of of um, how it helps. I mean, in term, I mean, I've, I've talked already about um, peace of mind, um, and also about how planning your wishes and documenting your wishes makes it more likely that you'll get the treatment that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of family relationships as well, it's really important. Um, I think a lot of people are kind of living, have had a diagnosis and they're, they're living with a, a condition and they often feel quite isolated, not in terms of the support that they have around them. They might have a lot of family around them, but they feel isolated in terms of how they're feeling because they don't feel like they could necessarily be honest. Mm-hmm. Um you know, just to give one example, um, I was speaking to somebody yesterday who felt quite strongly that once their um, condition had progressed to a certain point, that they wouldn't want to continue active treatment and they would just want palliative treatment because they would rather prioritise having a good quality of life 
um, than having a slightly longer life um, that, you know, undergoing um, very invasive and um, difficult treatments that would have a lot of side effects. But they were really worried about having that conversation with their family member. But mm. um, when they did, it actually, um, like, massively helped. And it and uh, their children said that it that they're glad that they had that conversation because it made, meant that they understood what was happening and they knew what was going to happen next and they could support um, that person. So, yeah, it, it has huge benefits. I agree. I actually have sort of the opposite example when I was talking to a patient the other day whose son is um, unfortunately got leukemia and the doctors are saying to him there's not much left they can do um, and he's determined to carry on and wants to find some innovative and trial treatment to try. I think both are very valid ways of looking at your illness. It's just we should maybe be more open to both and just talk about it. It doesn't matter what your decision is. It's just having the conversation, I think, that's important. Definitely. It's about, I think there's two things. The first thing is it's about what what is right for that person and everybody's different. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing that always um, astounds me is that no conversation that I have with somebody um, who's using our services is the same. You know, people come from hugely different backgrounds, and they have um, hugely different priorities. And, and, and it's the most important thing is what's right for that person. I was just going to go back to the um, to the bit that you said about doctors. And I feel like I agree with you definitely when you say that um, they shouldn't call it a difficult conversation. In my opinion, everyone will die at some point. It doesn't matter whether they have a terminal illness or whether they're healthy. A doctor will always come into contact with people that will die. So I totally agree with you on the difficult conversation things do you guys often get involved in those training projects is that something you guys do yeah we do so um we there's two ways that we try and help and change things for people and the first way is by going out and um supporting patients directly to be able to make decisions and to plan their care and then the other way is by helping to improve practice and we are incredibly lucky to have um so many insights from people about their experience of health and care and we feed that into the training that we provide to healthcare professionals um so we do training for um, at the moment we're training a group of gps in south tyneside for example and we're um supporting them to understand the different ways that people can plan ahead and to understand how to pick up on the cues that somebody might have in, um, in a conversation. I mean, it's it's very rare we find um, from talking to clinicians that someone will say, I want to have a conversation about advanced care planning. Um, yeah. they, don't say that, but they might just give, you know, little hints that actually they're thinking about these things and they're open um, to having that sort of discussion. And I think being able to pick up on those cues and maximise the opportunities to have those conversations is hugely valuable. So um, we help... Um, through our training people to do that great so moving on to sort of what specifically you do then um, mm-hmm. from, from the doctors um, what services do you provide for people to learn more about how to plan for the future we have um, an information line which is free and led by our nurse um, Sarah who has a background in palliative care and oncology. Um, most of the people that we speak to are individuals themselves and we also speak to family members and friends, care homes, doctors, all sorts of people and yeah. through the information line um, we help people, we give them practical support to, to make an advanced decision to refuse treatment um, 
to appoint an attorney to make decisions for them. We have a lot of conversations with people about CPR and do not resuscitate. Mm-hmm. Um, and also our nurse can help people to understand what their treatment options are and help them to prepare for appointments so that they know the, what questions to ask to get the information that they need um, in a consultation. So that's our information line. We also have um, an online service called My Decisions and that's completely free and again it's an advanced care planning tool and it takes people through a series of scenarios in which they might lack capacity to make decisions Mm -hmm. in the future and prompts them to think about what's important to them in those situations and then at the end they get a tailored um, advanced decision or an advanced statement um, which they can then sign and share with their family members and their healthcare professionals. Uh, we also provide um, numerous booklets and template, template forms on um, preparing for medical appointments, on starting the conversation about your end-of-life wishes. Um, and then we also work in local communities. At the moment, that's mainly focused in Lambeth. And mm-hmm. we work with, we partner with organisations in those communities and um, provide direct support to people on a one-to-one basis to um, plan ahead. And we also work very hard to try and engage communities who wouldn't necessarily have um, or, or, or who, who we know suffer from um, health inequality so they might not have the same access to healthcare as other other people or who yeah. wouldn't traditionally engage with death and dying um, and we uh, help them to start from a place of what matters to them and then unpick that and document all of those things so that their wishes are, are known about. So I think the impression I'm getting is that it's all still a very individual service. And despite the fact you're probably quite a small team, you managed to help people explore what really matters to them, which is really, really good. Would would that be right in saying that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, we do. And I think that the support that we offer people really varies depending on their needs. So some people phone us once um, and have one conversation you know other people we support through you know quite a long period maybe a month or two um some people phone us and they get they get a form from us and they start it and they might phone us back every other month for a year until they finished it for example because Mm. that's finding little bits of time in their life to go back to it and think about it and reflect on it um so yes you're you are right we are a small team but we're really able to kind of tailor the support that we offer depending on what people need and is your service open to anyone rather than someone who is diagnosed with a terminal illness? Are you open to anyone who might want to consider these things? Absolutely. Yes, we are. Um, so anybody can use our services. Um, I think it's a really important point that I think often there's a misconception that advanced care planning is only for people who are ill or older or dying but actually anybody who has an opinion about what they would or wouldn't want in the future should consider writing that down and sharing it in some way Um, and so we speak to a real range of people who have a terminal illness for example um, as you say and then people who are completely healthy and often quite young who might feel quite strongly that if they had um, say someone I spoke to someone the other day who cycles a lot in London and um, they were aware that um, if they had some sort of accident and had a brain injury then nobody would know what they wanted in that situation Um, and advanced care planning is as relevant to that person as somebody who is living with a a condition or multiple conditions yeah definitely and 
So what are the options to write down your wishes in terms of I have an idea of what I don't want and what I do want. What specifically do I need to create to, to convey those wishes to the people who need to know them? So there's a, a few different options um, and you can do all of them or you can do one of them depending on you know what suits you. Mm-hmm. Like what's called an advanced decision to refuse treatment, and that's often known as a living will, which is the old name for it. And that allows a person to say now if there are treatments that they wouldn't want in the future. And then that document comes into effect if they lack capacity. So if they're unable to make or communicate a decision for themselves. So... Um, People use that form. So if you take the example of the cyclist that I spoke to, yeah. um, that person um, used the form to say that if they were ever in, if they had a brain injury or, like, for example, in a vegetative or a minimally conscious state, then um, after a certain amount of time, they wouldn't want their life to be prolonged. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they would want to refuse life-sustaining treatment. Um, it's particularly relevant for people who are facing a likely loss of capacity, so somebody who's had a dementia diagnosis, yeah. for example. Um, and it can cover absolutely anything. Um, it, you just need to talk about the treatments that you wouldn't want and the situations in which you would like to refuse it. So um, common things that people include is refusing treatment if their dementia progresses to a point where they're anxious or they can't recognise their loved ones anymore. Um brain injury like I've mentioned already um which would include things like stroke um end stages of various um different terminal illnesses as well can be covered um and it really allows you to say this is what I want at a time when you wouldn't be able to communicate that and I think a lot of people wrongly think that family members can make that decision for them so we heard not I don't need to do that because my husband knows what I want but actually Mm -hmm. your family members have no legal decision making power at all Um, and we hear about really sad cases from people who have who call us and their loved ones have already lost capacity and they didn't have a conversation about what they wanted and they didn't um, plan ahead and unfortunately what happens is that loved one is stuck in a situation where the um, doctors are making decisions and of course yeah, doctors absolutely have a um, a moral and um, professional obligation to make the decision that they think is in that person's best interest. But there's no guarantee that what that doctor thinks is in your best interest is actually what you would want for yourself. Mm. Um, so that's why if you have an opinion about you know what you would want in those sorts of situations, that you make an advanced decision, it's free and it's legally binding. Yeah. Um, so that's the first option. Um, you can also make what's called an advanced statement, um, which is a, a really powerful document because it's a general statement about anything that's important to you in relation to your health and care. So it can cover things like where you would want to be cared for at the end of life, you know, your diet, your dress, your daily routine. And it can also cover, you know, things like, you know, what your your identity, so who you are as a person. So, um, if you're worried about going into a care home and um, you're not really being able to communicate to people what you want because you lack capacity, you might really like a certain type of music or a certain type of food, or you might have a particular um, religious belief or spiritual belief that you'd like to still be able to practice. And the advanced statement um, is a space for you to talk about all of those things. Um, Basically, the advanced decision and the advanced statement are kind of your opportunity to say to somebody who probably is 
you um, who might be making a decision. This is who I am and this is what's important to me. Yeah. A third option is what's called a, a lasting power of attorney for health and welfare. And that allows you to give somebody that you trust legal decision-making power. Um, so generally that's a family member and you can have as many attorneys as you want. Um, and then when a decision came to be made, the attorney would, would legally be able to make that choice. And you see that, would you see that as a good option for people who are not sure or don't want to think about specific situations, but would like someone who knows them well to make that decision? Is that a good way of thinking about a power of attorney? It's, it's really important that you choose somebody that you trust and be able to make those decisions. Um, what you don't want to do is appoint, you know, somebody that... that who's hugely close to you and that you love but who might not be able to make mm-hmm. and people often specifically want to talk about cpr and resuscitation does mm-hmm. that come under a different document or is it something you can include in the others or is it a bit of both it is a bit of both it's a very good question so you can put in your advanced decision that you would like to refuse cpr in every situation for example mm-hmm. Um, and that is legally binding on healthcare professionals. Um, however, in an emergency situation, something happens to you and you fall down in the street and the paramedic comes to you, they have, they're having to make very quick decisions. Um, and it's unlikely they would be able to, you know, phone your GP practice to find out if you had an advanced decision. So, um, it's therefore very useful if you do wish to refuse CPR that you also complete a do not resuscitate form. Um, and this is something that it's, it's not a legally binding tool. It's actually designed to be a communication tool between healthcare professionals. And it's called lots of different things. It's called a, D, a DNA CPR, a DNR, a DNAR. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it basically sets out that if your heart or your breathing stop, then you're not to be given um, CPR. And, and the, the difference between this and an advanced decision, for example, is that a, a, a do not resuscitate form just relates to decisions about CPR, whereas an advanced decision can relate to decisions about any kind of medical treatment. Um, and if you want a DNAR, the, the other difference about a DNAR is that rather than it being a document that you create yourself, it's actually um, written and signed by a doctor. So you can go and talk to your GP about that, for example. Great. I did find that one particularly difficult to research given all its different names. So you know there's advanced decision, advanced statement, living real, do not resuscitate. And um actually, you know, the principles of them are quite simple, but I think it's really easy for people to get lost in all the different terminology. So it's really definitely. important to demystify that, I think. Yes, definitely. So say someone wanted to start this conversation, do you have like a top tip about who you should start talking to or how to start the conversation i think my top tip would be just take a leap and do it um you know i've mentioned this already but if you're worried that people might react badly you might be really surprised at how people react um practically speaking i've heard from a few people that if if you are worried it might be an uncomfortable discussion or or difficult discussion then choosing to do it at a time when you're not just sitting you know face to face next to someone across the table helps so um doing it when you're in a car driving with somebody because you're not kind of looking at each other and it allows sort of space to think about 
thing that you know you said before the other person replies someone else um said they did it while they were doing the gardening with their partner so um, I think that that can be really helpful I have been guilty about arguing in the car because I know they can't get away from me so (laughs) not quite the same thing but (laughs) no no I think actually that's a really valid point yeah so not only is it less intense because you're not looking at each other but also you can't really go anywhere else so people to engage with it (laughs) (laughs) oh dear um and say someone has just been given a diagnosis terminal or otherwise just a Mm -hmm. diagnosis that makes them think a bit more about the future what would be your like number one to do from from that yes it's a good question I think my number one to do would be to understand the diagnosis as well as the prognosis um and think about what's being recommended in terms of treatment options and next steps so we hear a lot from people that they often don't realize that there are options or that they are you know that they can say no to a treatment for example and they're not really given time to um fully understand what the benefits of that treatment is um, Mm. or what the side effects might be. So I think definitely being able to understand the prognosis and using that information to think about what's important to you is, is um, yeah, it's a definite, a definite. Um, And then I think using that, it's one thing kind of thinking about it, but I can't say this enough that it's really important if you do have an opinion about what you do or don't want, just to write it down to make sure that everybody's on the same page, you know, your mm-hmm. family members and your um, healthcare professionals. Um, it, it's so helpful when I think there's there's an, uh, an assumption that how people will just know, you know, or that I've had that conversation or that, that somebody understands and it's not always true. So I think actually writing things down and talking, making sure you take the time to talk about it is, is crucial. Great. I hope people find that very useful. And if you don't mind me asking, what what do you enjoy most or find most rewarding about your work at Compassion Day? I I I'm always really moved by like, the willingness of people to talk so frankly and openly about their experiences, be that their experience of talking to their family or about the health and care system or about making decisions. Um, you know, and they're willing to share that at a time when often what they're going through is incredibly challenging. And that always amazes me. Um, and I also love the fact that we can offer a sort of space for people to reflect on their goals and what's important to them when often, you know, they don't feel able to do so elsewhere. So I think that, that might sound like a bit of a, a kind of corny answer, but I really love that. Right. I was just thinking I agree that yeah we make videos of patients we yeah. take them to meetings and force them to tell us what we what they think of our work and it's it's just amazing that they're willing to do that given they've got so much going on in yeah, terms of yeah, diagnosis definitely and I think I also really love that we can then use that all that great um just so incredibly important learning that people tell us and then we can mm. reflect that into the policy work that we do to try and actually improve practice um, and I think that Compassion and Dying as an organisation is quite happy to say what's going on you know um, to reflect the realities um, for people and what they're experiencing and, and I feel that that's quite a privileged position to be able to do that. Yeah I agree totally yeah and mm. um, is there anything you find challenging or, or difficult about what you do as well? 
Um, I think that the the things the the points for me that are challenging is when we speak to um, like a bereaved family member who says that you know now I know everything that I know having supported you know my 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 loved one then I could have I know we could have engineered that death very differently so for example now I understand that accepting that treatment led us down a, a certain path or now I understand that I could have been a bit more demanding with social care in terms of um you know the the help that we could have at home and that would have made a huge difference and it and I find that really challenging because I think that if people don't realize the options that they have and the choices that they can make and they don't realize the things they can do to make um to improve somebody's experience at the end of life until the person's already died then we're sort of getting something wrong really so that's my biggest challenge people say ignorance is bliss and it is until you (laughs) reach that point where you find out and then it's it, yeah. must, it must be 10 times harder than having the original conversation, I think. Exactly. It's, yeah, you don't want to sort of live with a sense of regret that you could have done things differently. Mm. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. You can find out more about Compassion and Dying at compassionanddying.org.uk or call them on 0800 999 2434. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline. 08088 010 See you next month.